0: Let's open the Word of God, please, to John chapter 4, John 4, verse 43, as we continue this new series we're beginning, and let me start here, I have to get my PowerPoint up. The Gospel of John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, includes seven specific miracles, he calls them sign miracles, that Jesus did during his ministry, leading to the ultimate sign, sign. The ultimate sign as to who Jesus is, is the resurrection. But leading up to that, Jesus does lots of miracles, the four Gospels tell us. But the Gospel of John limits itself to describing four in detail. And these are sign miracles. In fact, the original language of the New Testament uses a particular word that emphasizes that these miracles are like signposts. They're miracles with a message. They confirm the claims of Jesus Christ to be the Son of God and the Savior of the world. And when you look at those, John's not making any of these up. Uh, He saw a lot more of these, but he specifically picks these seven. He puts them in chronological order, and he wraps his gospel around that. And last week we saw the first one, which was water into wine. And it's interesting, Jesus not only attended a wedding uh, reception, he uh, was more than willing to keep the party going uh, after the the wine ran out. And um, this idea that Jesus was this stoic person that never smiled and didn't enjoy interacting with people um, is just something you might see in some of the old movies about Jesus, but it's not really biblical. This week we're going to move from water into wine to the remote healing 19 miles away from the, the site of where the person was ill, uh, the healing of a royal official's son. We'll describe that as we go through it. Uh, and I think as we look at this miracle, it confirms who Jesus is, but also is going to teach us some lessons about how we should think about the way we make requests of God. You know, prayer involves uh, a lot of aspects. We uh, confess our sins. We adore God's person. We ask for things for others. We ask for things for ourselves. And so asking or supplications the fancy word for asking for things for ourselves or others. Uh, we'll learn some lessons about how that should function today as we see Jesus interacting with this royal official. But let's uh, prepare ourselves to feed and drink deeply from God's word this morning. And uh, let's pray the teacher can be uh, clear and helpful and that the spirit of God will illumine the teaching uh to his glory. But uh Zane, I want you to pray for our, our uh, teaching time and pray uh for let's pray for super summer all over the building and let's pray for our troops, peace officers and firefighters. Just get all that in one big prayer, okay? I I love the Gospel of John, and I hope I can communicate some of that enthusiasm as we go through this series. Uh, Just to further warm up our capacity for abstract thinking, though, before we dive in, three things any pastor would love to hear, and this is modified from the list that Jenny and Stan gave me a while ago. You thought I lost it, but I've been carrying it around. Um, Here's the first thing any pastor would love to hear. You were so good teaching the Word this morning. None of us noticed you spoke for over three hours. That'd be good. They're not <laughs> laughing. They don't, they don't like that. Second one, I've decided to start a hey, pastor. I've decided to start giving the church the $5,000 a month I had been sending to the Lady Gaga fan club. So that's great. I'd, I'd call that a spiritual breakthrough. That's, that'd be great if you want to do that. And then finally... Um, People sometimes are too nice with pastors, you know. You're my favorite living person next to Donald Trump, Hillary Clinton, and Pee Wee Herman. Now, is that an insult or a compliment? I don't know. <laughs> okay, let's look at our passage here, John 43 through 54. We're looking at the seven signed miracles. You'll notice the very last verse after describing this miracle, John tells you editorial comment as he writes this, this again is the second sign that Jesus performed when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. At the end of the book, he tells you why he's writing this book. In John 20, 30-31, he says, uh, many other signs Jesus also performed that are not written, Jordan, in this book. He's saying, I'm not telling you everything I could tell you about Jesus. But these have been written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Savior, the Son of God, the God-man Savior and that believing you'd have life in his name. So we're working through these seven miracles. We come to the second one. It breaks down like this. First, we're going to see the setting and the context for the first couple of verses. Then we're going to see the request of the royal official. His son is dying 19 miles away. And then we're going to see this remote miracle that you can't reproduce in a laboratory, that's supernatural, that not, could not be explained by natural means. Um, this remote Miracle catalyzes saving faith um, in the whole household of the royal official. When when Jesus does miracles, there's two aspects of, of faith that come into play. Sometimes people just don't believe he really did that. They think it's a trick, sleight of hand. Maybe it was just coincidental the kid got better before the dad got back home. Some people just don't didn't believe then and now Jesus can do miracles. That's one hurdle. But the second aspect of faith is even more important. is connecting, if you believe Jesus really did miracles leading up to his atoning sacrifice to pay for our sin debt and his resurrection, if you believe Jesus really did those miracles, what does that mean about him and who he is and whether I should put my faith in him? So we're going to see the royal official here go through both phases. First, he's going to believe that Jesus healed his son then he's going to believe Jesus was his Savior. Those are two different things, and they don't always follow one from the other, but they should. Okay, Look at verses 43 through 45, and we'll put this on a map for you. After the two days he had spent south of Galilee and Samaria, Jesus went forth from there, Samaria, into the northern region of Galilee. For Jesus himself testified to his five disciples. He's only got five at this point. Buckle your seatbelts, because we just saw a whole city come to faith in Samaria, but it's going to be tougher in Galilee. That's the area I grew up in and for various reasons, they have a tendency to be suspicious and unbelieving. Jesus himself testified to prepare the disciples that a prophet, just kind of a proverbial event, a great saying a great person, a prophet, in this case, the ultimate prophet, has no honor in his own home country. You're just talking about people don't always see their own sights. You know, Ron grew up within, what, three hours of uh, Niagara Falls, Gettysburg. How many times did your family go to Niagara Falls or Gettysburg? Zero. You know, we don't always see our own sights. We don't always appreciate greatness in our midst. We just think he's the local tecton. He's the local guy who works with wood and stone. He works for his, his father in the carpentry business. So when he came to Galilee... The Galileans received him. Dekemi there is a general term for they were kind of happy to see him because they had seen all the things Jesus had done in Jerusalem at the Passover between the water and the wine. In this uh, event we're reading today, Jesus had gone to the southern region of Judea. Right there is Judea. To the city of Jerusalem for the Passover the big annual event still at Judaism Judaism focuses on. And he does some miracles there. We'll show you that in a minute. Then he went north through Samaria. Now, what was weird about that? No self-respecting Jew in the first century, glory, would go through Samaria because these were half Jews, half Gentiles, and the religious understanding of the day, not the biblical understanding, was these people had spiritual cooties, and so Jews didn't want to drive through Samaria, as it were. They didn't want to walk through it, ride their horse through it, Because all these people are half-breeds, and they don't believe the way we do, and so they're going to give us spiritual cooties. So the average Jew would just go around. But Jesus went right through Samaria, as we'll see. A whole city here comes to faith. Then he comes back to Cana. Cana is north and a little bit east of Nazareth, roughly right there. So... Jesus has been to Jerusalem, he's been to Samaria, he goes back to Galilee, he warns the guys, don't be surprised, if a lot of these people don't like us very much, even though I've piqued their interest. They were happy to see him come back, because they saw the things he did in Jerusalem, the signs he did there, that aren't recorded, but are referred to generally, we'll see that in a minute, uh, for themselves also went down to the Passover. So they're running out of entertainment value, and with a a lot of skepticism to see if Jesus can continue to do these miracles because they've known him for thirty years and he never did any miracles. All he did was build tables and houses and things, you know. So, um, as he'll say, just based on my character, you shouldn't be surprised at who I am. But uh, he didn't do enough miracles for them. So that's kind of the setting here. Uh, we're back in Jerusalem. We're back in his home region of Galilee. Uh, the people are curious, happy to see him, but pretty skeptical that he's actually doing miracles. And if he is able to do miracles, there's no way he's the Messiah. He's just a local kid who's grown up. And so something's going on here, but we're not quite sure what. Now, here's the rest of the story. John is very much into geography. You know, we saw the first sign last week in Galilee in the northern region, Then Jesus went to Jerusalem, then to Samaria, then to Galilee. Let's flesh out some of the stuff that happens there. After the first miracle we saw last week in Cana of Galilee, Jesus goes to Jerusalem, look back at chapter 2, look at verse 12. John 2, verse 12. Remember, uh, Mary said, hey, they don't have any wine. And Jesus said, you know, you're... Agenda for this is different than mine. We're not on the same page here, but I will help them, but I won't do it in a showy way because I've got a couple things to do before I start doing visible miracles and proclaim myself as the Messiah. Verse twelve tells you one of those two things. After this, the water into wine, Jesus went down to Capernaum, which is about uh, fifteen miles from Nazareth or so. He and his mother and his half brothers. And his five disciples, they stayed there a few days. I'm convinced Jesus, before he goes to the first Passover and begins his public ministry, Sherry, he takes his family for a little retreat and says, hey, I know mom knows this, and I think you guys have been wondering it, but yes, I am the Messiah. Isaiah 53 is all about me, and I want you to know that, because there's going to be a lot of opposition here and some issues and stuff, and we know the brothers don't believe in him until after the resurrection, but... People jump over verse 12, but Derek, Jesus is making a point to pull his family aside before the uh, pop and circumstances of a three-and-a-half-year ministry begins. That's interesting, you know. Uh, you've got to factor your family in as a major priority. Then he goes down to Jerusalem. Verse 13, the Passover of the Jews was at hand. Jesus went up to Jerusalem. You always go up because you're going up a mountain. And he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves at inflated prices with inferior sacrificial animals just to make a lot of money off the religion business. And he turned over their tables, made a scourge of cords, drove them out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. Now, who ultimately was in charge of how the temple should be run? And don't say the high priest, who ultimately (laughs) was in charge of how the temple should be run? Let's say God. Okay? He would have to be God to tell the Sanhedrin, how to run the temple, which is exactly why they ask in verse 18, in the aftermath of him putting them out of business for a day and repudiating the corruption in their religion, the Jews, meaning the Jewish leaders of the temple complex, said to Jesus, what sign, there's our word for signpost, miracle with a message, can you prove you're the Messiah? You'd have to be the Messiah. you had to be God in the flesh to tell us how to run the temple. What sign do you show us as to your, your authority to do these things, to cleanse the temple. And Jesus says, cryptically, you got to think about it. you got to have your capacity for abstract thought warmed up to get this one, Nicole. Jesus says, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. Now, they've been working on the temple, second temple, for hundreds of years, and they just have, basically have it finished. The Jews then said, it took us 46 years, the most recent renovation that really moved it up a notch, to build this temple, and you're going to raise it up in three days. They're thinking about the physical temple that's they're standing in front of, but what does John tell you? But Jesus was speaking of what? The temple of his body. He's thinking about the resurrection. So when, the, when he was raised from the dead, the disciples later remembered at the very beginning of his ministry, at the grand opening of his ministry, he's already anticipating the resurrection uh, and they were confirmed in their faith in Scripture, uh, which Jesus had spoken. Now watch this, verse 23. Now when he was in Jerusalem for this first Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs, which he was showing. When the Jews, Jewish leaders said, how can you verify the fact you can tell us how to run the temple? He'll say, I'm, I'm going to be the resurrected God-man Savior. That's the ultimate sign. But he also does other signs, right? Verse 23, many believed in his name because they saw other miracles he did. John doesn't record those. He tells you up front. There's a lot of miracles I'm not going to tell you about in detail, but I'm going to give you seven that are adequate for you to know what went on. Okay, boom, that's what happens there. Now what happens while Jesus in Jerusalem beyond the cleansing of the temple, Carol? He interacts with the most famous Bible teacher of his day. His name was Nicodemus. Look at chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Now there was a man of the Pharisees, then Nicodemus, ruler of the Jews, this man came to Jesus by night and said, we know you've come from God as a teacher, not the Messiah, not the Savior, but as a teacher, preacher, prophet possibly, for no one can do these signs. He's doing signs more than we're detailed in the text, but people are seeing the signs unless God be with him. And then look at verses five and six, Jesus says to him, hey, you know, you think you've got it wired because you're so religious and so righteous. But I tell you, unless a person is born of the water and of the spirit, you can't enter the kingdom. Now, I, did, did Stephanie have a baby this week? Did she? Yeah, yeah, last week, I guess, a new week. Uh What? She had it in a few hours. It was a short labor, right? What's was the first thing that happened to get the labor going? Did maybe the water break? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah, you know, people read, people read this in verse, Jesus is saying you gotta be born twice to go to heaven. Watch. You gotta be twice to go to heaven. Uh, you gotta be born physically and spiritually of the water, breaking the water sack, and of the spirit. It's not talking about water baptism. It's talking about of the water and the spirit. We're born physically, we're born spiritually when we believe in Christ. Verse 6 explains that. For that which is born of the flesh, you know, the water birth, where the water breaks and you come out of your mom's womb, is flesh. That's just a physical birth. That which is born of the Spirit of spirit. Now, how do you get born again spiritually? So glad you asked that question. Go to verse 14. He continues talking to Nicodemus, and Jesus says, you know, as Moses lifted up that serpent back in Numbers, and all the people bit by the snake who looked at it in faith were healed of the snake bite, in the same way the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, going to be lifted up on a cross to pay your sin debt. So if you believe in Him, you could have eternal life. In the same way, Moses lifted up the serpent, I'm going to be lifted up that whoever believes, Jew or Gentile, religious or irreligious, nobody's so bad they can't do this, nobody's so good they don't need to do it, will have in Him eternal life. For God the Father, the author of the plan of salvation, loved the world, and that includes Oklahoma, Okay, that He gave His Son to be the Lamb of God, to pay the sin debt and to be resurrected, that whoever Believes in him shall not perish like a fire future, have everlasting life now. For God didn't send his son into the world to judge the world. We were already under just condemnation, but that the world might be saved one by one through faith in him through Jesus Christ. He who believes in Christ is not judged. The one who does not believe has been judged already because he hasn't believed. Okay? So these things are happening before the event we're looking at. And then let's go to chapter 4 as he... He moves from, Gal- uh, from Judea, where Jerusalem is, up to Samaria, on his way back to, uh, our scene for today. Look at, uh, chapter 4 verse 9. Jesus was interacting with Nicodemus, a very righteous, religious guy in Jerusalem, in chapter 3. Now watch this. He's gonna interact with the bad girl in town. The Samaritans are hated by the Jews, and the Samaritans hate this woman because she has a very bad reputation. But Jesus has no trouble just meeting her where she is and talking with her, which would have been scandalous to the religious types. Look at verse 9. Therefore, the Samaritan woman he's interacting with says, How is it that you, being a Jew, talk to me at all, ask me to give you a drink of water? For Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. good Samaritan has spiritual cooties. Jesus answered and said, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you'd ask him and he'd give you living water. Living water is a metaphor for eternal life. Nicodemus is this old guy worrying about his mortality. Jesus says, you've got to be born again. This is a lady thirsty in more ways than one. He calls it for her living water, but it's all the same thing. Drop down to verse 16. Uh, he says to her, "Go. you want to talk about this? Uh, go get your husband and come here. Kind of like me asking about Stephanie being born. I, I mean, the baby. I knew the baby had come here. Yeah. Uh, rhetorical question go get your husband, let's talk. Woman says, I don't have a husband. Jesus says, yeah, you're right, you don't have a husband. You've had five husbands, you've you've divorced five of them to get a bigger and fancy house and a bigger chariot, and the guy you're living with now isn't even your husband. And look what she says, sir, I perceive you're a prophet. You know stuff that nobody else knows. Uh Drop down to verse, uh, it's, pretty, it's actually kind of funny, look at verse tw- 25. The woman said, here's what I do know. I know Messiah is coming. She's thinking in those terms. The religious leaders aren't thinking in those terms, but she is. Um, who's called the Christ. And when he comes, he'll declare everything to us. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am what? I'm the Messiah. I'm it. I'm the Messiah. Now drop down to verse uh, 39. Uh, she goes into town, interacts with the townspeople who normally wouldn't talk to her. She's going nuts. She says, is this the Messiah or what? And the story concludes, verse 39, from that city many of the Samaritans believed in him. That's how you get born again. A Samaritan, Jew, American, Iraqi, doesn't matter. Because of the word of the woman who testified, he told me all the stuff I've done. I've never met him before. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay, and he stayed there two more days, and many more believed. And they were saying to the woman, it's no longer because of what you told us about him we believe, We've heard it ourselves, and we believe he's the Savior of the world. The Jewish Messiah is the Savior of the world. So that's the setting. So go back to where we were when Jesus says, hey, don't expect that kind of response here in Capernaum or Cana or anywhere in Galilee, the kind of citywide reaction we just got in Samaria. It ain't going to happen. There's uh, no honor for me because they're going to think I, they can explain my stuff away because they've known me too well and too long So they receive him wanting to see what's happening, and they've heard about and saw some of the signs, but they're not sure they're legit. That's what's happening there. Now let's look at the request of the royal official. Look at verse 46. Therefore, he came again into Cana of Galilee, where we turned the water into wine a few months before, and there just happened to be on official business, although he's concerned about his son, but he's a... A royal official who works for um, King Herod Antipas, the son of Herod the Great, uh, and there was a royal official in town doing official business whose son was sick nineteen miles away at Capernaum. And when he heard that Jesus, you know, the guy who supposedly did some miracles in in uh, Jerusalem just now, and there's even a rumor he turned water into wine at a reception a month ago in this very city, when he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea. Back into Galilee, the royal official went, to, official went to Jesus and was imploring him, and that imperfect in the Greek means he just over and over and over, uh, to come down and heal his son, come 19 miles to the hometown of Capernaum, for he was at the point of death. Uh, this is not happening in a vacuum, okay? We know that the Galileans are excited to kind of watch and see whether Jesus can really do miracles. Everywhere he goes, As a crowd. This would have been in an open-air setting. He's got a lot of gawkers, people watching him, and this guy who's a VIP walks up to him and says, My son is sick. I uh, just got the word from that, and I want you to come help him. I want you to uh, come because he's almost going to die. This is a dire situation. Now, I don't think this royal official was any great theologian. I think he was a pragmatic politician, and he's not even sure Jesus can do miracles, but that's what the rumor mill is saying that maybe he can And if you get really desperate, you'll go to any port in a storm. So he's saying, I'm more than willing to try it out, okay, that kind of thing. Um, Now, notice what Jesus says in verse 48. Now, here's the thing. I think this is a very legitimate request from a guy who's probably, as I say, just a pragmatic politician, not sure what he believes about anything, (laughs) But he's there, heard a him about Jesus. Jesus just shows up, and he says, Hey, come to my town and help my son. I just got word he's dying. And Jesus says to him, but there's a crowd around. How do I know that? I'll show you in a minute. Unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. When Ross Perot ran for president many years ago, he was addressing the NAACP, and he didn't hear very... He had big ears, but he didn't hear very well, you know. So he was he was trying to connect with the people and said, you know, the reason you people don't have any jobs is because of this, and the reason you people don't have that, and the reason you people, and you people. He kept saying you people, and there's a very famous YouTube video here. And at some point, somebody in the crowd said, stop calling us you people. You know, I, he didn't, they didn't like it. So he went, what? What what did you say? He said, stop calling us you people. He goes, okay, thank you. Now, the reason you people don't have any jobs. He went right back to it, so he didn't, didn't hear it. But it's kind of like that. Unless you people see more signs and wonders. They've already seen signs and wonders. How do I know that? Look at verse 45. When it came to Galilee, they were open and wanting to follow him and see what was going on, having seen the things he did in Jerusalem, including the signs that Nicodemus talked about. So he's saying, you people don't believe what I'm doing is legit, do you? You think it's sleight of hand, trick, fake, gimmick, coincidence? Unless you guys see more. I think he's saying, you should know me, you've got more than enough information, but you're sitting there being skeptical and uh, even irreligious as you kind of follow around and see what's going on here. But notice, so that's, and that's plural, unless you, you know, you in English, Y-O-U, just means you. I can say, hey, you want to do this, or Steve, you want to do this. In Greek, you spell plural and singular you differently. And so I always say, singular is Y'all, in plural is all y'all. And this is all y'all. He says, after the royal official asked for help, Jesus is looking around at all these gawkers who are thinking, now we can seem to do another miracle <clears throat> and decide whether we believe he actually can do miracles or whether all this is a fraud. He says, unless all y'all see more signs and wonders, you've already seen signs and wonders in Jerusalem, you simply will not even believe I can do signs and wonders, much less believe I'm the Messiah. That's why he's saying that. Uh, I don't think he's rebuking the man for what's a frantic but a legitimate request. In verse 49, after he says that, Jesus, the royal official said, bottom line, sir, come down before my child dies. you got to come to Capernaum and heal my son. Uh, I think this guy believes Jesus is potentially a miracle worker. He hasn't thought about salvation. He's not thinking about salvation. He's thinking about his kid who's dying uh, 19 miles away. Now here's the thing about miracles. Sometimes people say, yep, yeah, if God would just show me a miracle, then I'd believe. The vast majority of people in the Gospels who saw miracles didn't believe Jesus was the Christ. Some of them didn't believe He did the miracles at all, they were fake. Or they believed He did miracles, but Jesus did so many miracles that the leaders of institutional Judaism, to explain them away, what does Richard Dawkins, how does Richard Dawkins, the world's most famous Hyper agnostic. He's told us he, he's not an he's not an atheist anymore. He's a hyper agnostic. If I had time, I'd explain the difference, and it is significant. But uh, what would Richard Dawkins say about the miracles in the Gospels? They didn't happen. The guys just made it up later. Why didn't the leaders of institutional Judaism, who hated Jesus, who was afraid Jesus would put him out of business, why didn't they say he doesn't really do miracles? It's too many people saw him, including these guys themselves. So what did they do to explain away Jesus' miracles? It's called the unpardonable sin. What they say? They ascribed his miracle power to Satan. You read about it in uh, Matthew 12 and Mark 3 and Luke 9. They just said, hey, no, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. He does miracles, sure. But he does them by the power of Satan. Okay? So... The unpardonable sin is looking Jesus in the face and categorically, not just refusing to believe in him as the Messiah, but it's categorical, absolute, unequivocal rejection of him, even to the point of saying he's a satanically possessed false prophet. That's the unpardonable sin. So if you're afraid you've done the unpardonable sin, you haven't. You've probably done a lot of other terrible sins we'll have to process for you. But uh, if you're worried about the unpardonable sin, by definition, people who've done it, don't care. You know, they're beyond the point of no return. So, boom. Yeah. Uh, my point is, most of the people who saw Jesus actually do miracles didn't believe he was the Christ. Some of them didn't even believe he did miracles. I thought there's got to be a trick here. But just believing he can do a miracle doesn't necessarily cause you to do what the sign's supposed to do, to move from there. to say that must mean he's the God-man Savior. I need to trust him for my salvation. Let me show you how this works. Look at John 6. Miracles can catalyze saving faith, but it's wrong for us to presume on God to do a specific miracle or demand specific miracles before considering the claims of Christ or as Christians trusting and obeying him through the ups and downs. And look at what Jesus says after the feeding of the 5,000 men and their families from one little boy's lunch. Look what Jesus says in John 6, 26. Jesus answered and said, in the aftermath of that, he's got a huge crowd following him. You know, they go to a teaching session, you got probably 12,000 people, 5,000 men, their wives, and their kids, maybe more, maybe a few less, and he feeds 12,000 people with one little boy's lunch, okay? Well after that, he can't get away from the crowds. But why are they following him, Steve? Because they want to have, want to be convicted and believe in him as savior? No. Here's what he says. He looked at the crowd that's fallen around the lake after the feeding of 5,000 and says, truly, truly I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw a sign miracle that confirms to you I'm the Messiah, I'm your Savior, and you trusted in me, but because you ate of loaves and were filled. The reason you're following me is because you got a free lunch yesterday. You know you believe I did a miracle. There's no denying he took that one kid's lunch and fed all those people. They all believed he did a miracle, but they didn't connect the dot. That miracle was one of the feasts of uh, facts of uh, miracles of creation. There's got to say, this guy's not just another religious teacher, he's the incarnation of God. So that's really important to understand. If we had more time, I'd read more of that passage, which is quite interesting. But let's just suffice it to say here that miracles can catalyze saving faith, but it doesn't always happen. Number two, miracles don't automatically lead to saving faith because People who will not believe in Christ as Savior can distort the true meaning of a miracle or just deny the miracle really happened by, uh, supernatural means and just say, say satanic, satanic means possibly or Richard Dawkins will say. Well right now, I think most liberal critical scholars will say the way that Jesus fed 12,000 people out of one little boy's lunch was all the people in those days always took lunch with them. They always had beef jerky or something on them. You stupid, stupid 21st century people believe this stuff. They all had food on them. They were just too stingy to eat their own food. But when the little boy took his Happy Meal and took it to Jesus, they all felt so convicted, they pulled their beef jerky out of their, their backpacks and they ate. That's how Jesus fed the feeding. We're going to get there. In fact, uh yeah, uh Dale said, now I can take next Sunday off too, because it's been announced where I was going to be gone, I was going to be gone the, uh, uh, the 10th and the 17th, but I got to do Zach's wedding next Sunday after church. Uh, that's not the only reason I'm staying, but I was going to, I was going to be here on the 3rd, but yeah, you know, uh, next week we'll do the 3rd of the 7 miracles, then the week after that, the 10th, Ron will speak, uh, the week after that, James will speak on the 5,000, which is the fourth sign, and then Lord willing, we'll be back and go from there. But yeah, miracles can catalyze faith, but they don't always because they can be disbelieved or explained away. So when people say, if I only see Jesus do a miracle, I believe. No, you wouldn't. Not necessarily. It just doesn't work that way. Okay, so the setting, the request. Now let's look at this remote miracle that catalyzes real faith. And there's a nuance here. Not everybody always notices. So kind of uh, buckle your seatbelt here. Look at verse 50. Jesus said to the man, what did the man just say? Please come down to my house, 19 miles away. He assumes Jesus might be able to do miracles, but certainly has to be present for it to happen, right? Um, They didn't have Twitter or anything back then, so it was hard to communicate. Jesus said to him, Go. You're good to go. Your son lives. He's not only healed, he's alive and well. Never been better. That's basically what that means. And the man believed That's that first kind of faith. This guy really believed Jesus did that miracle before he saw it. He believed it. Jesus had such force of character for him when Jesus said, hey, Lori, Cade's fine. He's not going to the city. He's dying, but boom, he's fine. And Lori would go, ah, man, that's awesome, incredible, be ecstatically happy. And this guy believed Jesus had healed him. Has no idea how that could happen, but believes it. He believed the word Jesus spoke to him and started off. And you're thinking that means he, he got in his uh, chariot or on a horse and went back home. No. He it just has the same force of he, as he went away. I mean, where were we when we started the story? Jesus just happens to come in town when this guy is in Galilee doing his thing, right? There, verse 46, there just happened to be a royal official doing royal official business, getting papers signed or having meetings or doing some kind of, something, some kind of official business, even though his son's sick. He's preoccupied with that, but he has to do his job for Herod Antipas. And so, uh, after Jesus says he's healed, the guy knows he's free to finish his business and go back home then. And I know that because of something we're going to read in the rest of the passage. Keep reading. There's a time gap of at least overnight between verse 50 and 51. And you can see that when you read this. And as he was going down the next day back to... Uh, Capernaum to check on his son to see his son who's alive and well as he believes. His servants met him saying his son was fine. And so the royal official inquired of them the hour when the son began to get better and they said, see that Steve? Yesterday. Yesterday. At the seventh hour, the fever left him. So the father, you know, looked the only reason I bring my phone up here is so I don't go three hours when I speak. This is just a, this is a, the most important piece of equipment I've got. You think my Bible's most important? No. This tells me when to stop. Because we can go on in a while. Uh, so the guy starts, you know, doing the math and, you know, thinking about when this all happened the day before. And Jesus, uh, the father knew that was the hour, the very moment when Jesus said, your son's fine. And then he himself believed and ultimately his whole household. Not that the son was well. They all believed the sun's well. They believed Jesus is the same God the Samaritan Society he was. He is the Savior of the world. Yeah, now, uh, when it says seventh hour, um, you know, we use military time. That would be uh, probably uh, 1,300 hours, maybe. Uh, or it might be uh what's uh 7 p.m military time 1900 hours yeah um it's it's weird the the synoptic gospels matthew mark and luke consistently use what's called jewish time uh which makes uh the the seventh hour starting at 6 a.m uh the seventh hour would be 1 p.m in the afternoon right seven hours after 6 a.m am i doing the math right 6 a.m., six hours later is noon, and one more 7, that's 1 p.m. However, John, in some contexts, including the last week, tends to use Roman time, and the seventh hour uh, starts at noon. And so the seventh hour, if he's using Roman time, would be 7 p.m. So you might say, well, Galilee, why would he spend the night? Well, I think he's got some kind of urgent business or he wouldn't have been in town anyway, considering his son's uh, status. When he finds out the potential miracle workers in town, of course, that becomes priority. He wasn't expecting that. He didn't know Jesus was going to be there. But after Jesus says he's fine, he believes it, has no doubt about it. If it's Roman time, he's siding here at 7 p.m., you might say, well, that's one reason he stayed over the night because it's dark and hard to travel, you know, on a horse or walk at night. Uh, and I think it's very possible he is use, using the uh, the Roman time, but it's also possible, we'll have to ask John when we get to heaven, he may be using the terminology that means 1 p.m. in the afternoon. And you might say, well, he's got plenty of daylight to get back home. Either way, he didn't feel a need to rush home. He felt a liberty to finish what he needed to do, so the king would be happy with him, uh, all the while totally convinced Jesus was healed. So he believed Jesus did the miracle, then I think on the trip home, he thinks about it, and he says, he's not just a miracle worker, he's the Messiah. And in fact, when he comes home, he not only comes home a believer in something much more important than Jesus can do miracles, but that he's the Messiah, he's going to be lifted up, he's going to be the issue, the issue of eternal life. And he convinces his whole household that Jesus was the Messiah too. So you have uh, a nice bright light in Galilee where there's so much darkness uh, not very long after this, in Matthew 12, Jesus says, Woe to you, Capernaum, and all you cities in Galilee. If, if I had done as many miracles in front of Sodom and Gomorrah as I've done for you, they would have repented in dust and ashes. But you guys are going straight to the hot spot, because you just won't believe. So this issue of you, you haven't done enough to prove, uh, just isn't true, but it's kind of the thing, one of the themes here. But this guy, this royal official, you might think, you know, politicians are all kind of slimy and, and they're uh, not very dependable. This guy is a shining light, and you'll see him in heaven for sure because this believing in verse 53 is not just believing the miracle happened. It's believing the miracle worker is the Messiah, the Savior, and what does that mean? The Bible says all of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God's eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This can represent God. This can represent uh, me, And the phone is the root of all evil. So we're going to let this represent sin. Here's God. How much sin does he have on him? None. Here's me. How much sin do I have on me? Quite a lot. Okay. But in Christianity, God comes to earth in the person of Jesus Christ, lives a perfect life, right, dies on the cross, and on the cross he bore our sin debt, paid everything that could keep us out of heaven on the cross, came life. Back alive again to validate that, and now through faith in Him, or Jesus, I'm a sinner, I'm guilty, I can't fix it. You can. You paid for us on the cross, and I want you to be my Savior. That's saving faith, active, receptive trust. If this is uh, this pulpit represents the cross where Christ pays for the sin, in the Old Testament they're given promise promises, and they're given a system that pictures the paying of a sin debt by a sacrifice. Jesus comes. Makes the sacrifice. We're on the New Testament side of the cross. How many of Nicole's sins, uh, George Washington's sins, Barack Obama's sins, Donald Trump's sins, and Brad McCoy's sins, how many of those sins were future when Jesus died on the cross? They were all future. How many of the, those sins did Christ die for on the cross? All of them. When you trust in Him as a sinner who says, yeah, I'm guilty. I can't fix it. I'm not trusting in myself. I trust in you. I believe you died to pay my sin debt. You rose again. I want you to be my Savior. Accept you as my Savior. How many of a person's sins are forgiven when that person, the royal official, trusts Jesus Christ? All the ones Christ died for. How many of mine were future when He died? How many of you died? See the point? See the equation? This is salvation, folks. It's not probation. It's better than anything that any religious mind has ever invented. So that's the second sign, and it it shows the omnipotence of Jesus, but also the difference between believing he can do miracles and believing the miracle worker is your Savior. Only you can do that. Take this to heart. Uh, When we come to to the Lord with requests, you you see, this guy comes with a request, but it's kind of packed, isn't it? I mean, the guy uh, says, I want you to come and heal my son. I mean, you can't do it here, obviously, we're 19 miles away. But uh, he was imploring Jesus to come down and go 19 miles with him back to his home in Capernaum and heal his son because at the point of death, come down before my son dies. Uh, you know, prayer requests include not just a what, but a how. His what was, heal my son. How, you got to come there physically and touch him or say words over him or Do something physically, right? That was the assumption of the guy. What did Jesus teach the guy? I don't necessarily have to be there. I can heal him from right here, okay? Uh, I've I've joked about this from time to time, but I think sometimes we make prayer requests and we don't just ask God the what. We tell him how he's supposed to do it. Okay, I want you to do this and jump through my hoop to do my what, okay? Come on, come on. God doesn't necessarily jump through your hoops. Have you noticed that? If He did, you'd be God, and that would be bad, you know, because uh, you live in Oklahoma. But uh, and He's in heaven. But uh, yeah, I think our prayer request should be more whats, and not how's. We got to kind of think outside the box uh, when that in that area. And then in prayer, after all, this is all consistent with what prayer is. We got to define prayer as a. Grace channel of communication whereby we seek and submit to God's will. Okay? Uh realizing our prayers are part of the process He's decreed to work out his will. So they're meaningful, but God's not just a cosmic Coke machine. You push the right buttons, use the right terminology, go through the right hoops, He's gotta give you what you want. Um you know, no smart parent, you're not you're not gonna give your little boy everything he asks you for, are you? And and it gets worse when they get a little older, okay? I mean, they'll ask you for all kinds of stuff. You won't believe. And you think it's bad when you have kids. What do you have grandkids? I mean, they ask you, you train them, you know, uh, when they say jump, the only thing I ask is how high, so they they pretty much assume I'm gonna give, I can't give Cooper everything he wants. You kidding? Can't afford it, you know? (laughs) We're already working three jobs, the two of us. I mean, what do you want? Uh, uh, and, and God's the same way. A lot of times we think because we're asking something with a pure heart, and it seems like it would be a great thing to us. He's got to do it, and his plan is a lot more complicated than that, right? So in prayer, we're supposed to seek and submit to his will anyway. So let's be careful about uh, giving God a how. We want him to do something, and if it doesn't happen on our time frame, on our time schedule exactly the way we want it, being disappointed or upset or surprised because it just doesn't work that way. This miracle shows you the power of Jesus to do miracles. We've seen the water and the wine, healing of the young boy from 19 miles away. But much more important than his power is his person. He's the God-man Savior. He lived the perfect life. He died to pay your sin debt. He rose again from the dead. If you believe that, we are to live for the one who died for us. If you haven't believed it, today can be the day of salvation, as he himself says, I am the resurrection. I'm the whole basis of Lori McCann going to heaven or Julie Demerson going to heaven or much more important, Debbie McCoy or Brad McCoy going to heaven. I'm the basis of the resurrection, the basis of eternal life. The one who believes in me will live even when he dies. And you know what? Unless the rapture happens, it's gonna that will happen. I mean, the death rate's 100%. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never really die. Awesome passage, awesome truth. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, let this uh, reality about the person and power of Jesus deeply uh, reorient our conception of reality. If anyone here this morning is not trusted in Christ alone as Savior, open their hearts to see and believe. For most of us, we have. Just renew our faith like little children uh, to know that you're not bound by uh, physical laws, uh, you can do supernatural things, and you do them all the time. But also help us to realize you're not bound by our definition of answered prayers or our mechanism of expectation for our prayers. Give us enough faith and, and expand our faith to, to rest in you, that you're a caring, loving Father, and you're not limited uh, in your ability to do things for us, not just in time, but in eternity. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.